Good morning, Cornerstone Church. I'm Pastor Bill. And when Pastor Danny asked what, um, for, or said to, to thank God for some things, or said what three things do you have to thank God for um, from this week, first one that came to mind um, was yesterday I officiated a wedding. And we don't think of it very often, but weddings are like holy ground because a guy and a girl stand and they face each other and they commit to love each other before God and their friends. And then there's, at some point, God shows up and he makes two individuals become one in Christian marriage. In the Catholic Church, it's a sacrament because it's holy ground. So that was the first thing I thought of. Second thing that I thought of is that I got to immerse in the scripture that we're looking at this morning. This entire week, I've been able to be reflecting on Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the third of five messages on the Sermon on the Mount, where we are watching how Jesus reconstructs faith so that when we are reconstructing our faith right now in our lives, that we are modeling the way we construct faith around how Jesus reconstructed faith. So we've been talking about this for a lot of weeks now. Um, many of us find ourselves longing right now for a better Christianity, a better church, and a better personal faith that really meets the realities of life in our world right now with greater wisdom and depth and grace. So I hope that most of you are in a process of reconstructing your faith right now because what has been was probably okay for that season, but I believe God is calling something new out of his church, and I believe that he's calling us all to personally reconstruct our faith. Dallas Willard is one of the, was one of the, the founders of the spiritual formation movement in my generation. He was, um, I was blessed that he was a personal mentor as well. And he wrote this. He said, there's never been a masterpiece of ethics to compare to the Sermon on the Mount. Preached by the smartest man who ever lived, Jesus was brilliant Nothing even begins to compare to his analysis of the human soul. So as I've been immersed in Matthew chapter 6 this week, I've been experiencing Jesus's kind of analysis of my own soul. And today, I want us to all experience Jesus analyzing our souls with his wisdom. Um, but before we get to Jesus, we're gonna, and we're going to spend most of our time listening to Jesus analyze our anxiety, okay? But before we get there, there, because that's the second half of the chapter, in the first half of the chapter, we, we are introduced to another pattern that Jesus uses when he reconstructs faith. And that pattern is very simply this. Do not live out your reconstructed faith. Do not live out your faith for the approval and likes and, and honoring of people. Live out your faith for the approval and likes of God alone. And we see that pattern in the first half of Matthew chapter 6. We see it in regards to our giving, our praying, our fasting, and our investing. So um, when it comes to our giving, Matthew 6, 1 through 4, Jesus tells us that when we give, don't give to impress people, all right? Give in secret 
and our Father in heaven who sees what's done in secret will reward us. And we tend to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't think this one matters very much, go to Acts chapter 5 and figure out what God did with Ananias and Sapphira with their ostentatious giving. Then when it comes to our praying, Jesus says the same thing, the same pattern. Don't pray for people to listen to you. Don't pray to be seen by people and to impress people. Pray to be heard by God and to impress God. This is where in Matthew 6, 5, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, which is a model for prayer in a reconstructed faith, not to recite, but to follow as a pattern of prayer for the rest of our lives. Then when it comes to our fasting, same pattern. Jesus says, don't, don't, don't fast and you know, put on you know, old clothes and look all somber and everything so that people see you. Don't fast for people, but fast in secret. And what Jesus is developing is a call to have a discipline, a spiritual discipline of doing things in secret with God so that only God knows, so that God can reward you. Because part of the deal here is if you get honor and reward from people for your spiritual exercises, you don't get them from God. you got to choose one or the other. And then when it comes to investing our lives, Matthew 5, 19 to 24, Jesus says we have to make a decision. Do we want the praise and honor of people or do we want the praise and honor of God? Do we want to store up treasures here on earth that will fade away and do not last? Or do we want to invest in treasures in heaven that last forever? In Jesus' reconstructed faith, we can never serve more than one master. One and only one. And if we're serving multiple masters, then we do not have a reconstructed faith that looks like the faith of Jesus. All right, final word here before we get out of the first half of the chapter. Uh, just a comment. Please note that in Jesus' reconstructed faith, he fully expects it to include giving, fasting, praying, and serving just one master. He didn't say, if you give, if you pray, if you fast, if you serve one. He says, when you pray and fast and serve. Jesus expects these spiritual practices to be woven in to all of our lives. And I'm pretty sure that we can't have fulfilled, vital spiritual lives without these four spiritual practices. So I encourage you to think of the role that each of them has in your life. Okay, second half of the chapter, we, re we really want to dig in to Matthew chapter 6 as Jesus analyzes our anxiety. And so I'm going to read verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Jesus is speaking, of course. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life worth more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, 
which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. More than any other word, six times. Jesus uses the word for anxiety, worry, and care six times in these verses. Last week I mentioned that I was reading a book by, um, by Mark Sayers called A Non-Anxious Presence. And in it, um, Sayers mentions the facts that we've all heard. We've all heard many, many times that millennials and Gen Zs are the most anxious generation that we've ever come across and ever known. But then Sayers points out that in every season of upheaval in a culture, things like pandemics and plagues and wars and rampant injustice, he points out that in every season of great upheaval in, in cultures, human anxiety always skyrockets for everybody in that culture. He says whole cultures experience pandemics of anxiety. And to the extent that he's right, I actually think that millennials and Gen Zs have been given a bum rap. Because not only, yeah, you are very, very anxious more than other generations that have been studied, but right now every generation is anxious because of the upheavals in the world. Sayer says it like this, like this. He says, anxiety is viewed as an individual ailment. And indeed, many experience it as such. However, there is a structural element, element to anxiety. We are living through a profound structural change in the world. And moments of structural change create a sense of cultural anxiety. Now, I know that you all know this next point, but research on anxiety is enough to make us permanently anxious and exceedingly anxious about being anxious. If you do your research, just Google in, how does anxiety, how does worry affect me? It is scary what the research says. And it turns out that Jesus was actually a pretty good physician and psychologist when he asked the question, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life. When we look at the research on anxiety and worry, not only does it rob us of the quality of life, worry and anxiety actually shortens our life expectancy. So let, you, let me just give you a couple of them. And hopefully you'll be overwhelmed by the high, the colossal cost of anxiety. Um, one article said this, um, stress and worry disturb the body's internal balance leading to headaches, upset stomach, elevated blood pressure, chest pain, sexual dysfunction, problems sleeping, depression, and panic attacks. Stress also can bring on or worsen certain symptoms or diseases. Stress is linked to six of the leading causes of death, heart disease, cancer, lung ailments, accidents, cirrhosis of the liver, and suicide. Yikes! But we can keep going. Second article points out that whatever the type or source, one thing is certain. 
anxiety has negative effects on health. For our blood pressure, the Mayo Clinic points out that anxiety can cause damage to our hearts, circulatory system, and kidneys. For our pain, from slight nagging to severe pounding headaches, they are common effects of anxiety, as is back pain. Sleep problems. Insomnia is a common effect of anxiety. You may have trouble falling asleep, or you may wake up frequently during the night. Long-term sleep problems can have serious health effects, such as lowering the effectiveness of your immune system, increasing the risk for heart disease and hypertension. And then, as if that's not enough, digestive problems. Anxiety-caused digestive problems can be as mild as an upset stomach or as severe as extreme nausea. Cramping and bloating are other physical symptoms of anxiety. Yikes, yikes, yikes. And every article that you read goes on. Let me just give you one more, then I'll get off this point. Worrying can affect your daily life so much, this is a quote, that it interferes with your appetite, lifestyle habits, relationships, sleep, and job performance. When fight or flight is triggered daily by excessive worrying and anxiety, it causes the body's nervous system to release stress hormones. These hormones can cause physical reactions such as difficulty swallowing, dizziness, dry mouth, fast heartbeat, fatigue, headaches, inability to concentrate, irritability, muscle aches, muscle tension, nausea, nervous energy, rapid breathing, shortness of breath, sweating, trembling, and twitching. <laughs> Yikes! Can we all boldly look at the colossal cost of anxiety to our physical bodies because the body keeps score and to our relationships and to the world. There is a structural pandemic of anxiety right now in our culture and in our world. Anxiety is coming after every single one of us. Evidently, it is massively coming after our teens and our tweens and it is coming after our children. There is a pandemic of anxiety in our world, which is crazy because anxiety is utterly ineffective. It saps our energy, but it doesn't fix anything. There's a certain amount of stress that motivates us to rise to the occasion, and then when we get past that, our anxiety and worry does nothing. It wrecks our health, it erodes our ability to thrive, it actually devours minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years of our lives. Mark 4.19, Jesus says that the worries of this life choke out the word of God and make it unproductive. Anxieties cause us to not be productive in the Christian life. It appears that Satan doesn't have to really make us bad if he can just work on making us anxious. So the bad news... Anxiety erodes us and can kill us. Here's the good news. We were designed for something far, far better. Isn't it amazing how Jesus seems to know all of this? And I picture Jesus kind of looking up in the sky and seeing some birds flying above when he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? And then I picture him looking at flowers, maybe in the side of the mountain, as he says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, 
Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious. Jesus wants our reconstructed faith. He wants to give us the gift of living non-anxious lives. He wants to give us the gift of living non-anxious lives. And it's not just here in the Sermon on the Mount. In John 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then in John 16, he says this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus wants us to have the gift of living non-anxious lives. So the million-dollar question, right? How? Right? We know we're not made for worry, and we can't just stop worrying by worrying more about our worrying, right? How do we become non-anxious people? We need to hear more than just stop being anxious, right? That kind of hits us and just traps us. In, and evidently, we have these really well-worn neural pathways of anxiety in our brains that need to be rewired, or else we will keep going down those pathways in our brains of anxiety and worry. We need a reconstructed faith that can deal with our personal anxiety and our cultural anxiety. We need some kind of spiritual practice to get the gift of non-anxious living into our overly anxious lives because we need to rewire those neural pathways to get from this constant to end costly anxiety to the serenity and peace that Jesus wants for us. And I would tell you this, a reconstructed faith in this generation isn't worth much if it doesn't help us become non-anxious people in the world today. So what if? What if we could see anxiety differently? What if we could see anxiety not as an enemy, but as a friend? What if we could see our anxiety not as a failure, but as a prompter? Instead of feeling bad and anxious about our worrying and our, our anxiety, what if we listened to our anxiety and co-opted it to prompt us to spiritual practices of peace and shalom? What if the anxiety that plagues us could lead us to practices that protect us? What if our anxiety were a trigger to trust? Might our anxiety that Satan intends for evil, might it even be a gift from God that God intends for our good? Is it possible that someday in our lives we could come across something and realize, I am really anxious right now. Oh, praise God that I'm anxious because now I get to give that to God and receive his care. What if our anxiety could be a pathway to the gift of being non-anxious people? So in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Rather than be anxious, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, because God will provide everything 
that we need. So what if the next time that you are anxious about school or work, about a paper you have to write or a professor you have to see, or a boss or a coworker or your next performance view, what if when you notice I am really anxious about this, what if you use that to remind you to check the order of your affections? Checking the order of your affections means, what if you use that to say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What would happen to your anxiety about all those other things if you got the order of your affections correct with God? Or how about this? Matthew chapter 6, Jesus also reminds us that God completely knows everything we ever, ever, ever need. Our Father in heaven knows us. Romans chapter 8 actually expands on that and insists that not only does God know our every need, but God is always working together for the good, working together all things for, for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. So not only does God know, but the scriptures say God is actually working in everything in our lives for our good. So what if as soon as we were anxious about a relationship, a friendship or a romantic relationship or a roommate or a, a family relationship? What if when we realized, you know what, I'm really anxious, I'm really worrying about this a lot. What if we would turn that over to God? Listen to the anxiety, note it, don't ignore it, don't try to push it away, acknowledge that it's there, and then decide to use that as a trigger to ask myself, what might be the good that God is working on right now in this? How might I wait and watch for what God has for me? Instead of being anxious and thinking about it in the shower and when I'm walking and when I'm driving, what if instead I ask the Lord to show me what he's doing and how he's working for my good in that situation? Do you see? Our anxiety can be a trigger to trust. Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7 are Paul's comment on this teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. We know because Paul starts out by quoting the words of Jesus. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. That's the quote of Jesus. And then Paul goes on to say this. He says, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that passes all understanding will guard all of those emotions that are swirling within us when we're worrying, and they will guard our minds, all of those well-worn neural pathways of anxiety. The peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We could co-opt our anxiety and our worry to lead us to prayer. And when we pray and make our requests known to God, with thanksgiving, sort of how Danny started the service this morning, with thanksgiving, then we receive a peace that is abnormal. We receive a peace that is not from us. It is from God. It is spiritual. It is from out of this world intended to infect this world. Brothers and sisters, this spiritual practice of redeeming our anxiety instead of being anxious about our anxiety this can change our lives, not all at once. This is not something, we are not going to rewire those neural pathways because we tried something for a day or a week or a month. This is a spiritual practice for day by day, week by week, month by month, decade by decade 
for the rest of our lives. So that as you are, when you get to my age, when you're in your 60s, that you are a fundamentally peaceful, non-anxious presence in the world because you've been in spiritual training your whole lives to redeem your anxiety, to lead you to experience the peace of God. Imagine what your life can be like if you were a non-anxious person. Imagine what all of your relationships would be like if you were a non-anxious presence. Part of the problem with the internet right now is there's an anxious presence everywhere driving everything, and that infects all of our culture. Imagine what the world would be like if we, the followers of Jesus, were non-anxious presences. So, here's one of the major things that I just want to, I want you to, to work on for the rest of your lives. Let's never waste our worry. Let's never waste it. Don't be worried about it. Let's not waste it. Let's um, co-opt it so we can become non-anxious people and non-anxious presences. So, two messages, the big ideas from Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Number one, don't live your life, don't construct your faith around pleasing people and being noticed by people and getting their likes on Instagram. Live your reconstructed faith to please God and God alone. And then secondly, we have the gift from Jesus. We can learn to live non-anxious lives and we can be non-anxious presences as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. By the way, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is actually on my parents' tombstone in Wheaton, Illinois. We can have this mark us from now for the rest of our lives. And when we seek first the kingdom of God, we will live longer lives and we will live better lives and we will make the world a better place in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, I mean, there are some here who are, who actually are more anxious than others. There are some here who are already living, already have the gift of living non-anxious lives, and I praise you um, for giving them that gift. And all of us long for more of your peace, more of your serenity, more of your shalom that passes all understandings because we're seeking first the kingdom. We're not divided in our heart of, of looking for, for things from you and then also looking for things from our parents and our careers and our friends and our neighborhoods and our education and our accomplishments. We are living for Christ and Christ alone. Lord Jesus, help us for the rest of our lives to redeem our anxiety, to become non-anxious people, of non-anxious presence in our world starting today and for the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.